man, I don't know if y'all needed that like I did, but Kendrick and Latricia and Alex, that was absolutely incredible. Was that not incredible or what? Yeah? Okay, are you guys alive a little bit? Okay, there's some energy. Well, hey, my name is Beth, and I'm on staff here at the living room, and I work with all of our small groups. And I'm so excited to be hanging out with you guys tonight. And I'm actually pumped that I'm excited now because this morning, like, I'm going to be real, I, I wasn't that excited. And it's not because I don't love you guys. I do. I really love you guys. But this morning I woke up and I was like, it's going to be a great morning. It's going to be a really good day. I'm really excited for today. And then I went through the process of getting ready. And then I had the moment where I went to my closet to pick out what I was going to wear for today. And I don't know if this has happened to any of you, but I went into my closet. I looked through every shirt I owned. And I looked through every pair of pants I owned, looked through every single item of clothing that I owned, and then I stepped back and said, I have nothing to wear. <laughs> anyone? Does that happen to anyone? Yes, it happens to me all the time. This morning was no different. I was like, there is literally nothing in this closet that I want to wear. And it's not that I didn't have anything to wear. I have, like, excess of clothes to wear. There's some, definitely something that I could wear, but had the moment of thinking, man, there is nothing in here that I want to wear. There is nothing in here that I want to put on. And I think it's super interesting because that happened to me this morning, but in the process of even coming up with this message, I'd actually just done some research on our culture as America and the fact that we are a consumer culture. And I realized that I fit in right to the statistics this morning. And I actually just want to show you some of the facts. These are just true of America. Let's look at some of these facts of our culture. So first, 25% of people who have two-car garages don't have space to park their cars because they have so much stuff, an excess amount of stuff. And my guess is that they went through the same process of looking at what they owned and feeling like they didn't have enough, and so they went and got more because they wanted something else. And in the last 50 years, the average American home size has tripled. And I read this more, and it says that the home size has tripled, but the number of people living in each home has decreased. So we've just added more space. We're not adding any more people to the house. And that an average child will accumulate 238 toys by the time they are 10 years old, but they will only play with about 12 of them. Y'all, that's insane. You wish you were that kid. Come on. That is over 23 toys a year. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know if that's just Christmas and birthdays. I don't know. But 23 toys a year sounds insane. And there's a few more of them. And in the United States, there are more malls than there are high schools, which is, you believe that? Really? I was shocked by that. In my mind, I was like, I feel like they are telling us that malls are like churches and they're on every street corner. But that is insane. But that makes a lot of sense to me because that thought went through my head this morning of, hey, maybe I'll just go buy something else to wear. And the only reason I didn't is because I didn't have time and I didn't have anything that I wanted to wear to the store to go buy something else. So I just picked something out, just put it on, went with my day. And then lastly, most households have more television sets than they do people, and the average home has three working televisions. And so I'm guessing that this is because everybody in the house wants some different form of entertainment, some different show that they want to watch, and so you just put enough TVs in your house that it is possible for everyone to watch what they want. And so reading these stats and then even thinking about myself this morning, I thought about the fact that we are an incredibly consumer-driven culture. We just are. And not only that, but we also are a culture of excess, and we are in a culture of instant gratification. 
So we want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, the way that we want it. And the way that our culture functions actually makes that possible. Whatever I want, I can go get it. If I want more clothes, I can just go buy more clothes. If I want a different house, I can put my house up for sale, I can go get a different house. If I want to watch something on TV that my roommate doesn't want to watch, I can just go throw Netflix onto my computer. We can get what we want, when we want it, how we want it, the way that we want it. And so today, I'm really not going to talk to you about this idea of minimalism. I'm not going to go tell you to clean out the clothes in your closet. I'm not going to tell you to throw out your TV. Like, that's not at all what we're talking about tonight, because as you probably know, we are in a series on prayer. And I'm sure you're wondering how in the world that any of this connects to the idea of prayer. But the more that I started looking at our culture, and our consumerism culture specifically, I started wrestling with this question of how has our consumer culture affected the way we pray? And my guess is that you have never wrestled with this question. This has never been something that you've considered. It has never been something that you've thought of. And honestly, it's not something that I really thought about until I began to work on this message and began to think about the way I pray, but then also how that really came from our culture and the way that our culture functions. And so our culture is uh, get what we want, when we want it, how we want it, the way that we want it. And when I began to look at my prayer life, and mostly the way that I interact with God, a lot of times my prayers are focused around what I want, when I want it, how I want it, the way that I want it. And that my interactions with God are very similar to the way that I view our culture, that I want an instant gratification And that most of my prayers are really just centered around that idea of what I want, when I want it, the way I want it. And so oftentimes when I step into prayer, it's when I'm in need of something. It's when I'm in times of trouble. In school, it was right before I took a test where I would just pray that hopefully I could pass. It's driving around the parking lot, maybe at the mall, just praying for a parking spot to open up. Like it is mostly just centered around us. And I don't think that those prayers are wrong. I don't think that those prayers are bad, but I think for a lot of us, we would say that that's maybe the only way we pray, and the only time we pray is centered around what we want, when we want it, the way that we want it. And I would guess that most of us pray that way. Most of us probably have those times of prayers, but I bet that most of us would also wrestle with this fact, that when I pray for what I want, I don't always get what I prayed for, when I wanted it, or how I wanted it. That's often the way that our prayers come off, but that's not normally how it works out, that we often begin to wrestle with, okay, but I don't think that this is working, because when I pray for what I want, what I prayed for, it never really turns out how I wanted it to turn out. I don't get what I wanted, the way I wanted it, how I wanted it. It doesn't end up actually turning out the way that I intended it to turn out. And honestly, this whole concept, you're going to have to stick with me, this whole concept reminds me of vending machines. And... Vending machines are designed for what? Our consumption. Like we put in our money, we pick what we want, and out comes our snack. At least that's how it's supposed to work. I don't know about you, but I have never had a vending machine work that way. I've never actually gone to a vending machine, put in my money, you know, decided what I wanted and and what I actually wanted to come out came out. Typically one of three things happens. The first thing that happens is this. What you wanted gets stuck. 
Like you, anyone, has that happened to anyone before? You go, yes, okay, probably everyone. Katie is like still really angry about it. <laughs> like you're struggling. It's fine. But we go to the vending machine, we put in our dollar, we hit, I don't know, E4, and we want our Oreos to come out. They're starting to come out, and then halfway they just get stuck. And it is incredibly frustrating, and it is irritating. And so then what do we do? You kick it, you shake it. I have seen videos of people who have tried to crawl in it. I'm sorry, a pack of Oreos is not worth all of that. But oftentimes this is what happens. It gets stuck, and it is frustrating, and we get annoyed. The second thing that typically happens is this, is that you get the wrong snack. And I really don't know how this happens. Like, this is still pretty mind-blowing to me. But you give the vending machine your money, you hit your E4, but F2 is the one that drops out. And I have absolutely no idea how that happens. But instead of getting your Oreos, you get Cheez-Its. And those are very different things. And when you went to the vending machine to get your Oreos, you were not in the mood for Cheez-Its. You wanted something sweet and chocolatey, and you got salty. And that's really not the same thing. And it is frustrating, and it is annoying, and I don't know how it happens, but it happens all the time with vending machines. And the third thing that typically happens is this. It just eats your money. Like, you didn't get anything. You put in your dollar, and nothing registered at all. You didn't even get your snack. And chances are you don't even really carry around a lot of cash with you anyway, so that was your only dollar, and you just wasted it. You got nothing. But how often does prayer feel the same way? That when we begin to pray for what we want, the way we want it, how we want it, that we feel like it doesn't often turn out that way. That that typically what happens is this. One of three things happens with prayer. The first thing is this. That I asked God for something and it got stuck. Maybe you have been in a season where you have just been praying for a relationship. You're like, I'm ready, God. And there just honestly hasn't been a lot of potential around me. But I would love to be in a relationship And it seems like all of a sudden maybe you have been going on a lot of dates, but nothing's working out and all of the dates are terrible. And it just feels like, wait, God, no, though, I think your prayer got stuck. I didn't ask to go on dates. I asked to be in a relationship. I don't know if you got the full message of what I was wanting. It just feels like the prayer got stuck. Or the second thing that happens is this, the opposite of what I prayed for happened. Maybe you're in a season of life where you have just been praying for peace. Like you've just been asking God for a lot of peace in your life. And then in one week, your car breaks down, the summer internship you were hoping for falls through, and you get in a fight with your best friend, and you sit back and think, God, I'm not really sure what you're doing, but I prayed for peace, and this just feels like a lot of stress. And that is exactly the opposite of what I have asked you for. Or maybe the third thing that happens is this. I prayed and nothing happened. Maybe you are in a season of life where you have just been asking God for friends and community. And you are still sitting in a room like this and you feel incredibly alone. And you're just wondering if God has even heard you at all. Or maybe you had a friend that you were desperately praying that God would heal them of cancer. And it just didn't happen. And you're wondering if God was even there and if he heard you at all. And in every single one of these circumstances, we are left frustrated. Sometimes we're angry. We're disappointed. And a lot of times we're left wondering if God even cares, if he even hears us. And that if we're even doing this whole prayer thing right to begin with. But the difference between 
vending machines and our prayers is that a vending machine was designed for our consumption. It was designed that we input what it needs, our money, and that it is supposed to output what we wanted. And when it doesn't, we have every right to be angry. We have every right to be frustrated. We have every right to be mad because the vending machine did not do what it was designed to do. It didn't do its job. And oftentimes we begin to view God the same way. That if we just give God what he needs, our prayers, then he will output what we want. And when he doesn't, we get mad and we're frustrated and we're angry because it feels like God didn't do his job. That he didn't show up the way that he was supposed to show up. That he didn't do what we asked him to do. That he didn't meet our needs or our wants the way that we wanted him to meet our needs and our wants. And it leaves us frustrated. It leaves us angry. It leaves us mad. And a lot of times it can leave us questioning God. But what if there was more? What if there's far more to prayer than just asking for what we want or what we need? Well, there's far more to prayer than just asking for what we want or what we need. And I believe that there is, and that is what we are going to dive into tonight, is this idea of maybe there is far more to prayer. Maybe there's just even far more to who God is than just asking him for what we want and what we need. And the good news is, is that I actually think that this is something that Jesus knew we would lean towards. I think he knew that we would lean into the idea of God um, being something that we could just consume from. That he knew that our prayers would often be self-focused. He knew that our prayers would often drift to being centered around what we want, how we want it, the way that we want it. I think he knew that. And so Jesus, being Jesus, has this conversation with his disciples where he begins to model to them what it looks like to pray. And tonight, we're just going to dive into that first half of the prayer. And my guess is that most of you have heard this before. If you've grown up in church, you've heard this. If you've been on any sports team, you have heard this before. But we're going to look at just the first half of the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's something that we've all memorized. It's something that we probably have recited over and over again. But I actually want us to pause and take a look at exactly what it is that Jesus is modeling. Because I think that if we paid attention to what Jesus is modeling, it would not only just change the way we pray, I think it would change our entire relationship with God. And so this is how Jesus starts off. Jesus says, our Father in heaven. And now this alone would have been an absolute game changer for the disciples. Because at the time that Jesus was beginning to share with them this prayer, to the disciples, God was an incredibly distant figure. That at the time they would have been hearing this, they were actually in a time where it wasn't just common for anyone to pray. Prayer was actually something that was set aside for just priests. So it was like the holiest of the holy that were able to interact with God. So if any of us had something that we needed prayer for, you would take that prayer request to a priest and they would pray on your behalf. So the fact that Jesus is even beginning to tell the disciples that they can pray is huge. But then the fact that he tells them that they get to address God as father is massive. Because it takes God from not just this distant figure that they don't have access to. They not only have access to him, but they are now told that he is an incredibly intimate being that they get to have access to. And I know that for some of you to even just hear that we can come to God as Father, that actually doesn't sit well with you. And that's hard for you. Because when you think of the term Father, you begin to associate that with your earthly father. 
And when you associate that with your earthly father, like there isn't actually a lot of good that is attached to that. And that's hard. And I get that. And that is difficult. But I think what is so beautiful about the way Jesus starts his prayers that he just doesn't say father. He says our father in heaven. And so there's a very clear distinction that he is not a reflection of our earthly father. That he is the perfection of a father. That he is our father in heaven. Which means he is not distant. He is not disengaged. He is not absent. Like that he is incredibly like focused on you. And that he actually wants to be engaged and involved in your life. And so if God is not just a reflection of our earthly father, if God is the perfect father, then there are a couple of things that have to be true about God. The first is this, is that he's loving. Is that God is loving. And recently I had a friend who had um, their first child. And I think it's always really fun when my, like, girlfriends have kids, but there's something that's really different about watching, like, your guy friends become dads. Like, it just does something to them. And I just remember he said about his baby after she was only just a couple weeks old. And he said, you know, like, I didn't fully understand what this was going to be like. But now just looking at my daughter, like, and just simply because she is mine, I am so incredibly proud of her. And I love her. She's never done anything noteworthy. Like, she hasn't accomplished anything. All she does is sleep and eat and poop. That's it. Like, there's nothing to be proud of. But I am so proud of her. And I love her, and I'm honored that she is just mine. And I think that that is exactly what God thinks about us. And I think that a God who is loving and that is proud of us simply because we are his, I don't think he's a God that's sitting around and saying, hey, I'm going to wait for you to give me what I need, your prayers, in order to give you what you want. I don't think God works that way. He's not a transactional God. I think he is a God who desires to show us that he loves us, that he cares for us. I think he is a God who wants to give really good gifts to his children. I do believe that. And I think sometimes that we can even begin to miss those gifts. We can begin to miss the way that God is loving us because we are so unbelievably focused on just the things that we want. But I think that if God is a perfect father, then he is loving. I think that is true of his character. It is true of who he is. And I think that any of us would say, yeah, if a father is perfect, then he loves his children regardless of what they have done or what they haven't done. He's loving. And the second thing that would be true is that he is trustworthy. Now, this might be a cheesy example, but when I think about the fact that God is trustworthy, I think about my mom. And now growing up, um, I, well, I still do, but I loved ice cream, like loved ice cream. And I told you now, like I'm better off buying ice cream by the gallon and just doing a scoop of it because if I buy the pint, I will eat it all in one sitting. Like it, every time it never fails. But even as a kid, I did. And every, like there'd be several nights where I would want to forego my dinner because I didn't want to eat my vegetables and chicken and I didn't want to drink my glass of milk. Like I would forego dinner and if I could choose, I would just eat ice cream for dinner. But my mom would never let me do that. And as a child, it made me so mad. So I would just always think, you're just not fun. Like, just let me have some fun. Like, you are robbing me of all of my joy. Which I probably didn't say you robbed me of all of my joy at five. But now I can translate that that is what I was thinking. You are robbing me from all of my fun. You are robbing me from all of my joy. But now standing on this end, I can see what my mom saw. And I can see that what she saw was, hey, you are going to have, like, a moment of satisfaction, but then you're going to be sick the rest of the night. 
And for the rest of the night when you're sick, like that consequence is like going to far outweigh your moment of satisfaction. And I think that that is one of the most beautiful things about a parent is that they are able to see beyond what their child can see. And I think that God can see beyond what we can see. And because he can see beyond what we can see, I think that we can trust him with our prayers. We can begin to trust him not only with our prayers, but we can trust him with our lives, that he understands the direction that he's sending us. He understands the things that he's doing because he can see beyond what we can see like any good father can. And I think that what also is true of being trustworthy is that we would all agree that any good parent wants what is best for their child. They just do. But oftentimes they want what is best for their child, not what their child thinks is best for them. And so we can trust that God wants what is best for us because he is a perfect father. And so when we begin to acknowledge that God is father, what we really are beginning to recognize and we're getting to understand. Yeah, recognizing God as Father allows you to understand that God is relational. That he is not distant, he is not disengaged, he is not absent, that he actually cares about you. That he's incredibly intimate, that he wants to be in a relationship with you. And that he wants you to come to him as if he actually is your perfect heavenly Father. And then Jesus continues on in his prayer. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And now hallowed simply means holy. And so Jesus is taking a moment to recognize the holiness of who God is. So after Jesus recognizes God as father, he then begins to really associate um, really God's power. He begins to just talk about how holy God is. And when things are holy, we treat them differently. Like things that are holy, they have value. And so when we begin to recognize that God is holy, we begin to see his name with reverence, that he is beyond us, that he is bigger than us, that he is more powerful than us. It begins to remind us that he is actually the one who has created all of this to begin with. And so really, really what is happening in this prayer with Jesus is that really when he is talking about recognizing God is holy allows you to remember his power. Recognizing God as holy allows you to remember his power. And when you begin to recognize God's power, it actually gives you this sense of peace that he is, in the, he is the one in control. It reminds you that he is the one who has created you. He is the one who has created this entire world. That he is the one that is in control in this entire thing. And because he is holy and because he is powerful, he can actually be trusted with all of it. And I think that it is incredible that in really just in the beginning of this prayer, Jesus has already acknowledged that God is relational, God is intimate, God is loving, God cares for us because he's a perfect father. But more than that, he has also recognized his position as being holy and powerful and in control of everything. And so after Jesus recognizes God as father and after he recognizes him as holy, this is when Jesus really makes his first request. So he continues on and he says this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So after Jesus has recognized God as Father, after he has recognized God as holy, the first thing that he asks for is for God's kingdom to come. And we're actually even told later on in Matthew to seek first the kingdom, which is exactly what Jesus is doing here. 
but what does that even mean? What does it mean to ask for God's kingdom to come? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom? And I think before we begin to understand what that means, I think we have to first understand what a kingdom is. And I feel pretty confident that everyone in the room knows what a kingdom is, but I just want to give a refresher. So a kingdom is a place or people who is ruled by what? A king. Well done. Bravo. You are all college students. Proud of you. Yes, a kingdom is a place or a people who are ruled by a king. And it is often that king that has final say. It is the king that sets the rules. It is the king that sets the regulations. Um, It is the king that runs the entire kingdom. The king has final say. And really what is often true is that the culture of a kingdom is defined by the characteristics of the king. The culture of a kingdom is defined by the characteristics of a king. So whatever the king says, whatever the king implements, whatever the king regulates, that is what happens in the kingdom. And we actually see this take place all around the world. Like take America, for example. One of the values or characteristics of the leadership of our country is freedom. So we are an incredibly free nation. One of the other things that our culture, our leadership really values is the pursuit of the American dream, which is so interesting because it goes right back to our consumer culture of us being able to have what we want, when we want it, how we want it, the way we want it. It's just part of our culture. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it can play out in bad ways sometimes, but it's not a bad thing that we are a kingdom of freedom and we are a kingdom where we are free to pursue what we want, the way we want it, how we want it, when we want it. But if you were to go to, say, North Korea, that would not be true because the values of their leadership are not freedom. The values of their leadership are unity and obedience, and you would see that played out throughout the entire kingdom. And so it's just true that the culture of a kingdom is defined by the characteristics of the king. And so if Jesus is asking for God's kingdom to come, then essentially what he's asking would be for the characteristics of God to come and be the culture in which he lives in. But what are those characteristics? What does that actually look like to begin to ask for God's kingdom to come? And luckily, God's kingdom is almost like specifically defined in Romans. Paul actually writes it out and says this. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of goodness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the values of God's kingdom are goodness, which would just be right and just. Things are right and just. In God's kingdom, things are good. It is a kingdom of peace. It is a kingdom of joy. But there's a distinction at the end of this phrase that I don't want us to ignore and I don't want us to miss. Where it says that it is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of living in goodness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's that Holy Spirit peace that I don't want us to miss out on. And so we have defined that God's kingdom is one of goodness, peace, and joy. But essentially what Paul is writing to us is he is saying, hey, actually on our own, we do not naturally lean to goodness, peace, and joy. Those are not naturally things that we are able to do on our own. And so on our own, we are not good enough to enter into God's kingdom. That if God were to say, hey, the only people who can enter are the ones who live in goodness, the ones who fully live in peace, the ones who fully live in joy, that none of us on our own would be able to enter into God's kingdom. His characteristics are far too good for us. And so Paul is telling us, hey, you actually need some help to enter into God's kingdom. And that is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. 
And oftentimes the Holy Spirit, we hear that, and a lot of us think that it's weird or it's strange. We don't totally understand it, but we see all throughout Scripture that the understanding of the Holy Spirit is just as important as the understanding of God and Jesus. And it's actually not that weird, and it's actually not that crazy, but simply one of the most important roles of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is our helper. And so God knew that us on our own, that in our own ability, that in our own natural way that we lean, in our own tendencies, that we would not be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And so he gave us access to the Holy Spirit to help us to be able to enter into the kingdom. And so when we say to people, hey, God is working through you, that is the Holy Spirit that is allowing them to live in goodness, peace, and joy. And when we tell people, hey, I see Jesus in you, when you hear those terms, that's the Holy Spirit that is allowing them to live in goodness, peace, and joy. And so I think really what Paul is reminding us is, hey, there, there is a kingdom out there that is far bigger than yours. And it is going to be your natural tendency to become the king of your own kingdom. But on your own, you are not going to be able to walk into goodness, peace, and joy. But that is what God has for you. That is what God wants for you. But if you are going to be able to walk into that, you need some help. And so that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And now this can be a pretty bold prayer to pray, to pray for God's kingdom to come. Because when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are acknowledging that we want our lives in this world to be shaped by God's character. So we are essentially recognizing, hey, that there is something better, there is something bigger, there is something greater out there, and I want that to come far before anything that I want or anything that I need. And so when we begin to pray for God's kingdom to come, what we are doing is we are putting our needs and our wants and our desires in their rightful place behind the wants and needs and desires of God. So we are saying that, hey, whatever he wants to have come, whatever his culture looks like, whatever his kingdom looks like, that we actually want that kingdom more than we want our own kingdom. That we trust that his ways are far better, that we trust that his ways are far bigger, that he has far more understanding, that he has a better idea of what he's doing, and that we want that to come before we want what we want to come. And so really, I think what what Jesus began to understand that I think that we all can begin to understand is this, that you can trust God with the outcome of your prayers when you know that he is Father, holy, and good. When we know that he is Father, when when we know that we can have access to him, when we know that he is someone that we are able to be in relationship with, when we know that he is someone who loves us and someone who cares about us, then we can trust him with the outcome of our prayers. And when we know that he is holy and he is powerful and that he is in control of all, then we can trust him with the outcome of our prayers. And when we believe that his central characteristic is that he is good, that if we are asking for his goodness to come, for his kingdom to come, then whatever it is that we've asked him for, the outcome of that prayer begins to matter far less because we have already acknowledged that he is Father and he is holy and he is good and that we can trust him with whatever it is that he wants to do with what we have asked him. And so really, this week, I want to ask you to just do a really simple thing that actually might end up being really difficult. But this week, I wonder what it would look like for you to begin to paraphrase the, just the first half of the Lord's Prayer for you, to change the words for what that would mean for you. And so this is my version. It just says, Father, 
Thank you for being a loving, trustworthy, and perfect father. Thank you for always having my best in mind and for having the wisdom to see beyond what I can see. Thank you for being faithful. You are powerful, holy, and your ways are higher than my ways. You are worthy of all my attention. Help me to become more like you and to see other people the way that you see people. I give you final direction and final say over my life. You are a good father and worthy of trusting. What would it look like to pray a prayer like this this week and then just stop there? Don't ask him for anything else. Don't bring your wants. Don't bring your needs. What would it look like to just begin to acknowledge him as father, holy, and good? What would it look like to sit with him as your perfect father? What would it look like to begin to recognize his holiness and power? And what would it look like to begin to ask for his kingdom to come before your own? I think if we spent time just doing that this week, it would not only begin to change the way that we felt about the outcome of our prayers, but I think it would begin to change the way that we view God. I think that it would put God in his rightful place in our life. I think that we would begin to trust him more. I think that we would love him more. I think that we would understand him more. And I think that when we begin to actually pray for what we want, what we need, I think we're even going to begin to pray about those differently because we have an accurate understanding of who God is. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are Father. We thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you are good. And so, God, we ask that even this week that we would begin to recognize that, that, God, wherever this is difficult for us, whether it is seeing you as Father, whether it is seeing you as holy, or whether it is asking for your kingdom to come, God, I pray what, whatever it is that we would just be able to sit with that this week. And that this week alone, that we would just come to you with those, that we would just recognize who you are, and that we would just sit in the power of who you are before ever bringing you a want or a need. Because, God, it is true that you are worthy of our attention that you are powerful, that you are in control of our all, and that your kingdom is far better than our own. God, we love you, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.